When we think Crusades, we think of the Holy Land, Palestine, Jerusalem. But these were not the only Crusades going on. In fact, the battle for Spain and Portugal, what was also known as the Reconquista, was also a crusade. Indeed, at times, the Pope himself even said this was a more important and higher priority crusade than the one in Palestine. And of course, the crusaders would fight against heretics in the Baltics, in Russia and Eastern Europe, and all over. But today, we're going to continue to look at this lesser known, but also equally important and influential crusade. The so-called reconquest of Spain and Portugal, which marked a huge turning point from which the Muslim world never really recovered. And that is our story today. So please stay with us. for all your kind comments, your posts, your messages on Facebook. Uh, all the encouragement has really been great, and I appreciate all the kind comments and, of course, very good suggestions that so many of you have made for uh, possible topics that we can discuss, and I really appreciate all of that. Um, I wish we were able to get these episodes out uh, more frequently than we are right now, but of course, you know, we're living under the changes of COVID-19, and of course, for me, being a full-time uh, professor teaching uh, full-time and having to adopt all of our courses into this hybrid format, teaching online and so forth, uh, that is really, really keeping us busy. So I'm not able to get these out as often as I would like, but uh, trust me, uh, when the conditions allow it, uh, I will definitely be getting back to that. So again, thank you again for all of your encouragement. Anyway, we want to continue with today's topic. In our last episode, we talked about the beginnings of the so-called Reconquista in Spain and Portugal. And of course, I mentioned what a sensitive issue this is to me, uh, that title, but I mean, it's one of the uh, great bad titles out there so that people know it and they're familiar with it. Well, when we discussed the early phases of this, uh, what we said was most of the struggles were actually local struggles between Christian rulers and Muslims of the Umayyad Emirate. And, of course, these began almost immediately from the time that the Muslims entered Spain. In fact, the so-called beginning of the Reconquista actually is dated to before the date at which the Muslim conquest into Europe stops, which is typically the Battle of Tours or Poitiers. Um, so the Reconquista begins almost the, the moment that a Muslim feet set foot on the Iberian Peninsula. But as we pointed out, in the early days, 
those really weren't uh, religious wars. They really weren't any kind of organized crusade. It was more of a political thing. You were just as likely to find a Christian kingdom allied with a Muslim state fighting against another Christian kingdom and another Muslim state, and you know, come back a few years and the alliance will be switched around. Um, it was very much a local political thing in which all the players, Christian and Muslim, were basically uh, individuals fighting for their own uh, territory. Well, that is going to change. The, the character of this is going to change. Now, that is always going to be the case to some extent. Just like we said, even during the Crusades, in the time of the Crusader states in Palestine, we were seeing all kinds of alliances of uh, Christian kingdoms allying with, uh, with the Mamluks to fight other Christian kingdoms. That's always going on. But uh, this fight is going to begin to take on a much more unified, at least in theory and symbolically, uh, religious connotation. This is going to develop into, uh, right out, a crusade, an actual official crusade. Okay, so the changes really begin in the 11th century, and by the end of the 10,000s, a millennium ago, crusading knights become as much a part of the landscape of Iberia as they are in Palestine. In fact, we can say that the first actual, quote, crusades begin in Spain years before the actual campaigns to liberate Jerusalem. And what's very clear is from that point on, popes and kings in Europe saw this Reconquista in Spain as one branch of the overall crusade against infidels. Because we have to remember, it's not only Muslims they were fighting against, um, although that was the primary enemy. Uh, There were plenty of crusades against other Christians uh, throughout Europe as well. Well, this change in nature is really going to change the relationship between Christendom and Islam and set in motion a grand notion that continues to this day, at least for some. Uh, U.S. military forces in the Persian Gulf, even, however paradoxically this is and illogical, the establishment of the state of Israel are depicted in a lot of Arab media as being crusades. And, of course, it didn't really help when President Bush went to the National Cathedral in 2001 and literally declared a crusade, using those words, um, in Iraq. And when that was reported in the um, newspapers of the Arab world, a crusade was translated as a Christian holy war against Islam, which is, you know, what it means even if people have forgot it. I mean, today you have the crusade against cancer and the crusade against uh, poverty. Well, those terms aren't used in the Middle East. Crusade means literally, um, coming from cross, a Christian holy war. Uh, And so when President Bush declares one of these, uh, they take him literally. Okay, well, that narrative is, it's so dominant nowadays that it's hard to think that it wasn't always that way. Um, You know, the Catholic bishops initially looked at what they called the, quote, Mohammedans as one of many, many heresies out there. And Muslims were seen as another heretical branch of monotheism. 
So, I mean, you had all kinds of them. There were, particularly in the early centuries of, centuries of Christianity, there were those who called themselves Christians but considered Jesus to be just another human. There were those who had a different pope. Uh, there were those who uh, didn't believe Jesus had any humanity at all. And they were all, to all the other sides, um, infidels. And so when they looked at these, quote, Mohammedans, uh, they were just like looking at yet another feudal principality who had a different version of Christianity, a bad version of Christianity that you didn't like. You know, there were the Eastern Orthodox you didn't like, there were the Mohammedans, there were the Coptics, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, in reality, there were so many of these spread about that, hey, you just might as easily have allied with the Mohammedan guys over there as you would have allied with these other Christians that you didn't like. Well, that is definitely going to change, and it's never going to go back to that way. But we have to remember that's kind of the way it was for the first few centuries of relations between uh, Christianity and Islam. Well, this big shift, however, is going to lump everybody from the Berber sultans in Spain with the Turks in Iraq and Central Asia under one banner as fighting against another brotherhood that joins English lords and Venetian merchants and Byzantines all together. And the transition through this grand narrative of us versus them, Christendom versus Islam, uh, part of that transition takes place in Iberia. And what happens there is a big part. On the one hand, it's a symptom and a result of the change, but on the other hand, it's a cause, it's a catalyst for that change, as much as the fight for Jerusalem is. So, let's look at it, exactly what happened. Well, back when the Astorian king, Alfonso the Catholic, we talked about him before, when he was fighting against the Umayyads, the Pope was little more than a bishop who controlled the area around Rome. Now, this, of course, gets highly obscured because as the papacy became uh, more important, they went back and rewrote history. Of course, everybody rewrites history, but uh, few have done it as prolifically as the, uh, the Vatican has uh, to say that the papacy begins with St. Peter, for example, uh, but also to say that this thing... This office continued, you know, right from the time of Jesus straight on to today. Well, of course, we know the reality is that's not what happened. Uh, the idea of a pope, the Bishop of Rome, as he's still called, was literally just that, the Bishop of Rome, and, you know, not much else outside of Rome. But by the 11th century, um, some very politically shrewd popes, and they, they, they were, as you know, many of them extremely political. Uh, people like Alexander II, and particularly Gregory VII, are going to turn their office as the Bishop of Rome into a trans-European power, or at least a major Western European force. Of course, they're always going to be opposed by uh, the Eastern Church, in Constantinople. 
and it's Pope Urban II, who was made a cardinal by Gregory, who is best known for starting the Crusades in 1096. But the papal sponsorship of military campaigns began 30 years before that. It begins, in fact, in Spain by Alexander II, two popes before him. And so this is where we're really seeing the shift. And Spain really is on the leading edge before Palestine. Well, Alexander is a very important figure in this transformation. Uh, in, in reality, before him, popes were essentially approved and chosen by the Holy Roman Emperor, which, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor, that place was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but was um, basically the Germany of its time. It ruled most of Central Europe and Italy, and eventually is going to morph into Germany. But the Holy Roman Emperor was the one who essentially picked the popes and put them on the seat. Um, just like today, of course, Islam does not have a senior figure, but a lot of people look to the Sheikh of Al-Azhar as being the senior figure in Sunni Islam. But, I mean, it's, it's a well-known fact that the president of Egypt is the one who handpicks the, the Sheikh of Al-Azhar. Well, this is what was happening back then. Uh, but Alexander is the first one who's going to break out of this mold. He is the first one to be chosen solely by the cardinals. And we know they do this even today when the Pope dies. We know the Council of Cardinals goes into meetings and we have to wait to see the smoke to see if they've made a decision. They're the ones who make the choice. Well, this is a big difference. For the first time, the church is actually approving its own Pope. And that means he's no longer under the thumb of a king. Well, uh, William of Normandy, who we will soon know as William the Conqueror, remember 1066 is his big year, uh, he even sends an ambassador to Alexander to get permission to invade England, that famous Norman conquest. So we have one of the biggest events in European history. Some say it's the biggest event in British history, and it's being sanctioned by the Pope, by the guy in Rome. Now, whether that is just window dressing or justification or, you know, really important, um, well, that's you know, a matter of debate, but it is showing the increasing importance of this office of the Pope. Now, of course, the Holy Romans, i.e. the Germans, did not take this lying down uh, just because the Pope says he's independent. Uh, they're not going to go along with this. So what actually happened at that time is they selected a rival Pope and went through the whole process of installing him. And this is one of several times in European history where you have more than one competing pope out there. Um, well, there was a lot of maneuvering and uh, brinksmanship that would go on, but eventually the Holy Romans caved in. They downgraded their guy to a cardinal and acknowledged Alexander as the pope. Well... Um, that was one development in this series. With the next pope, Gregory VII, who is really seen as you know the, the big one for breaking out uh, papal authority, uh, he would go so far as to excommunicate the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. 
which led to a big standoff, uh, which the Pope eventually won, and this ends with the very famous scene of the emperor walking to the Pope's castle to ask for forgiveness, which is a huge development. Now, of course, over the centuries, the balance of power is going to swing back and forth between popes and kings, but for the first time, we've seen that uh, now there really is a balance of power, that really popes do have their own power. Well, big changes are going on, but if you're going to have this centralized office of the pope, the leader of at least Western Christianity, well, he's going to be making trans-European decisions. And part of this is going to involve the Muslims in Spain. new power. I mean, he's blessing off on wars in England. When he looks at the Iberian Peninsula, he's going to want to assert himself there. I mean, we've got Christians fighting against these Mohammedans, these Muslims. Uh, So he's going to want to assert his authority in this theater as well. So what was going on in Al-Andalus at the time? Well, at the beginning of the 11th century, the Umayyad Caliphate in Cordoba was riding high. Cordoba was the largest city in Europe. It was certainly the most advanced. It was a rival to Baghdad only in wealth, scholarship, and the fine arts. But things fall apart really quickly. Uh, the actual power behind a succession of figurehead caliphs was the vizier al-Mansur. Now, if this situation sounds familiar... It's basically a repeat of what we've seen happen to countless Muslim dynasties in this series. El-Mansur, who is the the vizier, supposedly the assistant, is really running things. Now, El-Mansur happens to be very conservative, and he based his power mostly on jihad. And he led several successful campaigns against Leon and Astoria and Pamplona, all in northern Spain. And this is building up his cred. And so for him as the leading figure of this state, as opposed to the caliph, he's, he's building it on this basis. But as often happens, when Al-Mansur dies, the state falls into internal struggles. And he's actually killed in battle, so it's a surprise. So we get several weak caliphs put in power um, in quick succession. Some of them are probably assassinated. You know, they're all like the figureheads for different cliques within the, the royal palace who are vying for power. But none of them are really strong, and none of the powers behind them are strong enough to consolidate things. In the meantime, not only are they dealing with the Christians to the north, there's a revolt of Berber slaves uh, in Cordoba, which really puts the city into chaos. So in the year 1031, the caliphate falls, and Al-Andalus enters what we call the Ta'ifa period. Now, Ta'ifa... It means a sect or a faction in Arabic. Nowadays, it's pretty much used for a religious sect, like uh, ta'afi violence is sectarian violence. 
And that's what we have here, because these are essentially independent, not harmonious city-states. Well, that weakness is going to open the way for the Christian advance. And so, arguably, the first crusade in history, anywhere, is going to be the northern Spanish city of Barbastro, which is near Zaragoza and Barcelona in northeast Spain. Now, like Covadonga before it, which we talked about in the previous episode, is not a particularly important place overall, uh, but it becomes the site of a major turning point in this struggle. But like everything, it starts small and sort of local and political. Uh, from the year 1040 on, the Taifa of Larida, which was essentially a weak state that ruled the area, was paying tribute to Ramon, who was the Count of Barcelona. I mean, essentially, they were paying him money in exchange for not being conquered. And he liked getting the money better than having to rule them, so it worked pretty well. But in the meantime, several other cities had fallen to Christian rulers. But this one is going to be uh, different. The successes in Spain, which have been going back and forth for, for years, for decades, um, you know, with Christian kings winning territory, then losing territory back and forth. But now it's got the attention of the Pope. It's got the attention of Christian knights in Europe, and particularly the Christian knights in France. And it's really these um, French knights who are the main force for the Crusades, all of them, uh, particularly in the early Crusades, the First Crusade, going to Palestine, it, it's really having these French military power that you need an outlet for, right? You, you have these guys whose whole reason for existence at that time is based on their ability to fight wars. That's how they get to be feudal lords. Now, eventually, they're going to lose that legitimacy, and they're just going to become a completely parasitic uh, aristocracy, and we get the French Revolution, but that's way off. So you, you have to have something to do with them. Well, they are going to be the ones who get sent off on crusades, and it works out really well for them. Uh, but they've seen what's going on. And so if you're in France, uh, which is you know now completely Christian, and you've been fighting back and forth against other Christian lords, but you see, hey, well, there's, there's guys like us down in Spain. They're conquering cities. They're getting a lot of wealth. Uh, well, you know, we need to get in on this. And so Spain becomes an outlet for these people. So, in the year 1063, Christian rulers from Normandy, Burgundy, uh, other parts of France and Spain, uh, Western Europe, gathered to discuss military expeditions against these Taifa kingdoms. And remember, this is three years before the Norman conquest of England. So, again, I mean, they're looking for places to uh, assert their power, and it's not all against Muslims. It's, hey, wherever you can. Okay, so back in Spain, Ramon, the Count of Barcelona, he wanted to control some more cities, uh, so he decides he wants this city of Barbastro now instead of just getting the tribute from them. Well, this normally would have been just another thing. Okay, they get conquered. Maybe a few years later, they get liberated and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But this is happening at a time where the rest of Europe is looking for an outlet 
um, for, you know, they're essentially crusading spirit. Spain is a big battlefront. Here comes this guy, Ramon, who's quite an operator, uh, to this gathering in France and tells them, hey, there's these infidels, these horrible pagan uh, satanic people, which, as we'll see, is exactly how they were described. Um, I need your help to liberate this city so you know Christians can worship freely. I mean, of course, this is the same same kind of political conquest that's been going on back and forth. But you know, he's going to make it sound really good. Well, the Pope hears about this and not wanting to be left out. Oh, okay, a whole bunch of these French knights are going to go fight in Spain. Okay, I, I want a piece of this. And so he declares a, quote, Christian emergency. Now, it's really hard to look at what's happening in Barbastro and the neighboring areas. Consider that over the past few centuries and, and see, okay, what here is any different than what, what has been going on for so long, right? But... The, it's really on the other side that things have changed, and so now there is this Christian emergency. You know, it is the duty of every good Christian to go down to Barbastro and fight for whatever it is Ramon wants to take this over for. Okay, so here we get, for the first time, the Pope issues a bull, which, you know, a bull is a bulletin, right, a popal uh, uh Papal decree, but I always think it's so funny, right? A, a bull, which I mean, of course, in American slang, we know what bull means. But anyway, it's always always one of those laughs. Okay, so he issues a bull that declares that the French knights participating in this expedition in Spain would receive forgiveness of sins and be freed from doing any penance. Now, this is 30 years before the First Crusade in the Holy Land. So, before that ever happens, and before you start getting these blanket things that you can go there and, and be guaranteed a place in heaven and forgiven of all your sins by going to fight in the Crusades, it happens first here in this, you know, really minor battle in, in Spain. So this, this guy can take over the place he's been squeezing tribute money out of. Well, I mean, this is, this is a great thing. Now, of course, I mean, remember, people are still um, very, very devout, and the Christianity at that time is very clear. I mean, you're going to go burn in hell forever unless you get forgiven of your sins. Uh, and this is it. You go, you go do this, and you're forgiven, and you don't have to do any other penance. Go fight in this Christian emergency. Um, and you're good. So this is where it first happens. Okay, um, so so they do. But this marks a big change in the nature of the warfare. From now on, it's it's a you know a completely different kind of thing. Okay. Well, anyway, in the meantime, while this was going on, all this buildup, uh, Ramon is killed trying to take the city of Barbastro, but his son takes up the fight. And he wants to recruit help from knights in France's, France and other parts of Europe because it's not going so well. So um, Pope Alexander was undoubtedly aware of this when he issued his decree. And he said that it was permissible to fight against, quote, the Saracens who were oppressing Christians in Spain. Okay, now, whether Alexander is just trying to jump on the bandwagon to, to get a role in something that was going on anyway or um, 
Whether the princes in Spain were using the Pope to generate support for their efforts is not clear. I mean, really both are going on at the same time. So anyway, with all this going on, in 1064, a force from all parts of France and Spain captures the city of Barbastro. And the Muslim historian Ibn Hayyan, who was the chronicler of these days, he refers to the leader of this force as, quote, the commander of the cavalry of Rome. And so, again, this is the first time that this army is seen as being the army of Rome, which of Rome in, at that time means the army of the Pope, the army of the, the Catholic Church is exactly what that means. Now, this is believed to have been the Norman Duke of Aquitaine, Robert Crispin. Uh, so he's an, he's an outsider, but he's not being seen as the, the French guy from Aquitaine. This, he is the deputy of the Pope. So even the Christians now are seeing this as an army being commissioned by the Pope. Well, if this is the beginning of the Spanish Crusades, it had a lot in common with the beginning of the Eastern Crusades. Uh, the Christian army promised safe passage to the inhabitants of the city of Barbastro if they surrendered. Um, and, of course, the Muslim residents who are used to the back and forth that's been going on for centuries between Christian and Muslim rulers. I mean, you get one come in, then another come in, and then another. Uh, and so when they say, okay, you know, just surrender and, you know, we'll treat you well, well, they, they take it at face value because that's what's happened in the past. But this is a different thing. This is like the Crusades. So just like what happens in Jerusalem, three decades later, uh, Barbastro would be massacred. Um, it's just a huge uh, massacre of inhabitants, a wide-scale rape of women and boys, and then lots of people carted off as slaves. Um, it was really a, a horrible, horrible experience. Now remember... Uh, this wonderful deed gets you a place in paradise. This good deed gets you saved from all your sins, from the bad things that you did. Now you get forgiven for all these people you raped. Okay, so it's, you see, it's, it's developing this nature of a religious war that unfortunately we deal with even uh, today. Well, for the French knights who participated, it was a very profitable expedition because they returned with a lot of loot. Uh, which is, I mean, this is how you got paid. There was no salaries. Soldiers got paid by what, you know, what they could loot. Uh, and, and in this case, it was a lot. I mean, you came all the way from France and you came back rich. And so the chroniclers on both sides, though, they noticed a big difference in the way the Christian forces from Iberia treated the Muslims and those from outside did. Uh, you know, for the the proto-Spanish, who have been used to this, they've been living alongside these people, fighting with them sometimes, allied with them sometimes, trading with them sometimes. Uh, you know, there was a fair amount of tolerance back and forth on both sides. But from these invaders from France and further away who were commissioned by the Pope to go fight against these devils, no, I mean, they... They're being told the more violence they wreak, the more reward they're going to get. And so it's a completely different type of warfare. And of course, you know, one kind of uh, violence is going to beget another. The Muslims are not going to take this in stride. 
The next year, Al Muqtadar, who was the Muslim king of Zaragoza, recaptures the city of Barbastro. And Ibn Hayyan again reports that the city was, quote, purified from the filth of idolatry and cleansed from the sins of infidelity and polytheism. Well, you can see how things have progressed and how they have really changed character. Both sides think they're doing a holy duty uh, for the same God, by the way. Um, both sides see the other as you know, not monotheists, as being you know, either devil worshippers or polytheists, pagans. And they, you know, they are, believe they're commissioned by God to do this. And this is going to really change the nature of the bloodshed. Peaceful. Uh, he was not a one-off. His successor, Gregory, was determined to extend papal authority even further, and so he renewed the call for a crusade in Spain. The local rulers took him up on it. And so Sancho Ramirez, who was the successor to the deceased Ramon, he declared himself a vassal of the Pope. So it's, you can see it's now... This relationship is lucrative in both ways. So not only is the Pope trying to get in on this, trying to claim leadership for uh, you know, military expeditions going into Spain, uh, but now you have these Spanish rulers claiming that, yeah, hey, we work for the Pope, because if you do that, then you, know, you have all these allies coming to you. Well, Gregory would go even further. Uh, he would call on the authority of the uh, supposed donation of Constantine to claim sovereignty over all of Spain. Now, the donation of Constantine, which is what it sounds like, uh, this is a document that is now universally recognized to be a forgery written in the 3rd century. Um, and in this, uh, the Emperor Constantine, of course we know Constantine was the famous first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. He's the one who moved the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, which of course is named after him, and which would become the capital of the Byzantine Empire. And of course now it's Istanbul. Well, Constantine is also famous for splitting the Roman Empire into two halves. The western half, which was headquartered in Rome, and the eastern half, where he was in Constantinople. Okay, that much is all true. We, we know that is true. Um, and that's where it ends. This very fake, quote, donation of Constantine is where he supposedly gives or donates the western half of the Roman Empire to the Pope. Now, not only is the document fake, but it's like, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, um, as we said, the, the Bishop of Rome had no territory and very little authority at that time. I mean, we're talking not even at the time before the 10th century. Talking back in the, the 3rd century, 
when Constantine becomes the first ever Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, and we're to believe that he's essentially donated half of his empire to the Bishop of Rome, who's later going to claim to be the Pope, who will become the Pope. Okay, I mean, th this really doesn't make any sense. Um, for one thing, he doesn't give the eastern half to a clerical figure. He gives it to himself. He would have certainly, had he designated someone, he certainly would have given it to a military or a political leader. But anyway, as we know, and history is always being rewritten, and people always tend to look at history through whatever the present is. So if the present time says, you know, that the Pope is now getting a lot of power, uh, he's now commanding military forces all over Europe, so the idea that he was designated uh, to do this, to be the ruler of all Europe, well, I mean, it, it fits with our current political situation, so we accept it. This, by the way, I mean, this is this is one of two or, you know, one of many uh, supposed places where the Pope gets his authority. And of course, there is the, the biblical claim that when Jesus says to Peter, I will, build my rock, I will build my church upon this rock, that he's making Peter the Pope. Of course, we know, well, that's a, a matter of opinion, of theology, and so forth. There doesn't start to be an office associated with that um, for, for a long time afterwards. So that's one. But this is another one where it's, you know, political authority is given to the Pope through this um, uh, forged document. Anyway, Gregory is going to use this document to create the fantasy that all of Western Europe and North Africa belong to the Pope before the sneaky Muslims came along and stole it. Aha, so if we have this Reconquista going on, when these Christian princes, people like Alfonso, uh, are conquering territory, they're, they're conquering territory that belongs to the Pope, not to the King of Castile, who eventually become the King of Spain. You're, you're conquering Pope's territory because it's all Pope's territory, you see. Well, of course, people are going to do what suits them, but for some, some of these Spanish lords, uh, like Sancho Ramirez, they're willing to go along with this. Say, hey, if, you know, the Pope doesn't have his own army and his own country, so to speak. So if saying, I am a vassal of the Pope, and hey, yeah, hey, Pope, I am going to go reconquer this land of yours, and then you're going to deputize me to, to rule it in your name. If that gets me all these armies and, and money sent to support me, heck yeah, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're... You're my, you're my boss. And so he does that. Okay. Um, furthermore, Gregory, again, is going to cite this claim of the Apostle Peter having been designated as the first pope to also say that all parts of the Roman Empire have to send their tithes to him in Rome. So, of course, tithe is supposed to be 10% of all you earn, and this is collected by... 
you, you, even as today, you give it to your local church. And so this is being collected by the, you know, the local diocese, the local parishes, the local bishops are collecting this money. I mean, and a lot of it's ended up going into the, the national church, uh, treasury of the kingdom. Well, Gregory's going to, again, cite this fact by saying, since I have been designated as the head of the church, this money all comes to me. Okay. So, uh, well, this is not going to go over well in places like England, where they'll say, yeah, not happening. But for these Christian rulers in Spain who are conquering new land, now, of course, they're going to sit down and do the dollars and cents calculations. But if you look at it and say, hey, you know, if we have to send a 10% cut to the Pope, but in return we get all this military support and this helps us conquer... You know what? Actually, it's worth it, and so they do it for some. Yeah, particularly for um, someone like Sancho Ramirez, who we said he's in he's in northeastern Spain, you know, where geographically he needs this support coming from Europe and so forth. It's been, it's always been much more of a battleground with the Muslims, so it's worth it to him. For more established Christian kings like the line of Alfonso's in Leon and Castile that we talked about in northwestern Spain, an area that the Muslims never managed to conquer, and you know, because of its rugged terrain, they, they have always held on to. This is nonsense, right? I mean, now you're saying you get a 10% cut, but we don't need you. We don't need your help, so no, you don't get anything. And so this is just one of many, many, many battlefields in Europe in which the kings and popes are fighting for authority. Right? Uh, for the outsiders, for knights and princes in France and Italy who are looking to gain new territory, you know, gain a new foothold in Spain and get some loot, hey, it's a worthwhile deal. Okay. Um, if you're the king of Castile, if you're Alfonso, hey, no, this is, this is not worth it. Okay, so a lot of these people, particularly the outsiders, those in Spain and Italy, they sign up. They become vassals of the pope. They get official authorization for their campaigns. It's, they get lots of recruits, a lot of money, and it's a duty. You have to go support them. Uh, and this, all of this is taking place before the first crusades in Palestine have even begun. So you can see the blueprint uh, being laid here. Okay, well, with all that going on, in 1085, again, we're still 10 years out before the first crusade, uh, Alfonso VI, one of that long line of Alfonsos, captures the important city of Toledo in Spain, okay? Um, not the one in Ohio, which I don't think he wanted. Uh, and when he does this, he cites himself as emperor, and he claims that he was commissioned by God to restore the city to Christianity. He declares that, quote, the barbarians worship the cursed name of Muhammad, end quote, and now instead... We, the city follows the God of faith. Okay, again, there's this idea that the Mohammedans are worshiping Muhammad, which, of course, we know is not only not true, it's you know, complete blasphemy, but this is, this is what uh, people think. This is what the outsiders think. 
Okay, but the key thing here is Alfonso is not mentioning the Pope in all of this. Uh, he says he is the emperor, and he's the one who was commissioned directly by God. God said, Alfonso, you go do this. He said, okay, God, he did it, and God gave him the power. Cut the Pope out of the process completely. And again, it, it depends. It's geographic. Uh, in the western part of Spain where he's at, the, have the support of the Pope really isn't useful. In the eastern part where um, Sancho is, different. Okay. Well, the Pope who is most associated with the Crusades is Urban II. Of course, he launched the, quote, First Crusade in 1096. But even as he was doing this, Urban uh, raised crusades in Spain to the same level. In fact, the Pope encouraged knights who were preparing to go to Jerusalem to go to Spain instead during the uh, siege of Tarragona, which was going on at the same time. And he said, quote, It is of little virtue to deliver Christians from the Saracens there, meaning Jerusalem, while exposing Christians here to the tyranny and oppression of the Saracens here, end quote. And of course, Saracens is their word for the Muslims. Um, it's, of course, also a English rugby team for some odd reason, but it is. Uh, but we see what's happening. Here is the guy who starts the Crusades in Palestine at the same time saying, hey, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. Actually, more important that you go to Spain. Now, of, of course, it depends on what was happening in each of the two theaters at the time. Uh, if things were going well in Spain, then you wanted people to go to Jerusalem. If things were, were good in Jerusalem and we were losing in Spain, you wanted them to go fight in, uh, in Spain. But after the fall of Jerusalem in 1099, I mean, when the, the horrible massacres that went on there, things were pretty stable there. As we see, it took a, a long time for the Muslims to react to this, sort of because it was such a bolt out of the blue. So... You know, uh, the Holy Land looked pretty stable, but things in Spain were rocky. So that's why he wanted to send um, a, a push into Spain. Well, after Urban dies, the new pope is Pascal II. Now, Pascal happened to be a bishop in Spain before he became pope. So he's definitely got a particular interest in that part of the world. And so he would assure the crusaders in Spain of the same rewards as those who went to the Holy Land. Say, hey, this is just as good. Don't worry, you will, you will not miss out on anything. You get forgiveness of sins, uh, you get indulgence, you get internal life, um, which, I mean, these were the biggies. He's pushing it even further. This basically forgives you of all your future sins. So essentially, all you have to do is you go to either one of these places massacre a bunch of people, and you were, you were good to go. You were, you were clean um, forever. Wow, eternal! you get eternal life. That's a pretty, pretty big deal. Uh, you'd be 20 years old. Um, and 
he really incorporates them into the Crusades. He insists, however, that they wear the Crusader emblem, which was a cross on the armor and on the shields. And I mean, you have seen this picture a million times of the, the knights with the cross on their shield and on their armor. If, if nowhere else, you've seen it in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But I mean, I'm sure you've seen this picture. Uh, and they had to say the same Crusader oath. So, I mean, this thing, this is a crusade. Now, he's making this official. This is absolutely a crusade. And he even talked some specific princes, like Pedro I of Aragon, who had taken a vow to lead an army to Palestine. The Pope goes and convinces him to fight in Spain instead. Okay, so this is, this is really, you know, it's, it's at least as important, although it's not as well known. Okay, well, in some cases... Kings could do both, right? Why, why just do one? Particularly those who had to travel from northern Europe could stop off in Iberia on the way, and you'd get some practice, right? So like the king of Norway, for example, who was leading a crusading army to Palestine by sea. I mean, look at how far we're talking about. This is, this is a thousand years ago. He's leading a, an army, an amphibious army from Norway all the way around to Palestine. Okay, anyway, um, of course he had to pass by Portugal, so he raids Portugal, he actually tries in, to capture Lisbon, but fails, and he will uh, eventually attack the Balearic Islands, which are in between Spain and Italy. He then gets joined up by a fleet from Pisa, uh, and they go on. Eventually, an army from England and Scotland would capture Lisbon. On their way, right? Wow, just what a what a what a great deal! And of course, they were, you know, just as nice um, in Portugal as they were when they when they got to Palestine as well. Okay, so again, this is a real transformation from what we had in the last episode, and it's, it's unfortunately a character, a memory that is is not going to go away. Okay, well. As it happens, the Crusades against the Ta'ifa kings were going really well. The situation had changed drastically from when we had a united Umayyad Caliphate only at the, at the beginning of the century. Now it was Muslim kings and princes who were paying tribute to Christian rulers, particularly Alfonso, who was now the king of Leon and Castile. Now, Alfonso really was less of a crusader than his peers from France and Italy. So, I mean, because, I mean, he, he lived there. He lived with these people. He, you know, we, we've heard him say some bad things, but he, I mean, he also knew how to coexist. So he was willing to accept money in lieu of conquest. So, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder, I mean, if, if you're trying to wipe off the scourge of the devil and, oh, I'll give you money if you don't. Oh, okay. But, I mean... You know, that's, that's sort of his thing. And now, in fact, in fact, Alfonso referred to himself, at least in his correspondence with the Muslims, as, quote, the king of the two religions. He's the king of Islam as well. Okay, whatever. I mean, you, you're going to, meaning you're going to swear loyalty to me. Okay, so, and really not the crusading spirit that we're getting here. These people who are coming from France, I mean, you understand in the time of, 
um, they're living in, most people never went more than 10 miles from their birthplace in their entire life. This is a fact. It's something like 80% of the people never went more than 10 miles from where they were born. If you're in France and, and you're being recruited to go off to Spain to fight some foreigners with a strange religion, I mean, this, this would be like us today going to Mars to fight aliens. So, you know, when you get there, they're not even thinking of these people as humans. And so they're, they're able to just show a level of violence and inhumanity that's different from what a, what a guy like Alfonso, the king of the two religions, will do. Okay, so anyway, by the year 1085, the economic conditions were very rough from the Muslim city of Sevilla, very famous city, which was ruled by the Taifa king al-Mu'tamid. And he couldn't pay the full tribute to Alfonso. In fact, he, he levied a special tax to try and raise as much money as he could. I mean, this is protection money. I mean, give me the money or, I, or I'll kill you. Uh, he, he couldn't raise enough money. So he begged um, for leniency. But Alfonso would hear nothing about it. So he lays siege to the city. And this time... You know, probably because of everything that's been going on, this is not a nice siege like some in the past had been. Alfonso's point made a made a uh, a special point of raping and pillaging the area around Sevilla. It became notorious, and it sparked this demand for revenge. So El Mu'tamid, who is seeing this and realizing he's not just dealing with the same kind of back and forth that you've had in the past. And now there's just tremendous brutality uh, being waged. He realizes he has very few options. Uh, the Muslim rulers in Spain are so weak, so divided, um, they just can't stand up against this, uh, this wave that's coming against them. So they've got to turn somewhere for help. Well, the most powerful Muslim state Nearest to them was the Berber dynasty of the Almoravids in Morocco. And, of course, we had an episode on them a while back, so I'm not going to revisit all of that, but you can go back and check that out. So, uh, but anyway, they, they're a rising power. They've conquered you know, all of what is today uh, Morocco and you know, much of Algeria. Uh, but you might remember the Almoravids were very strict religious purists. They came from the desert. They were Berbers, so they, they had a very Spartan lifestyle. And the way they took over Morocco was by imposing their strict version of Islamic law. Now, the Andalusian Muslims, of course, they were accustomed to a much more easygoing atmosphere. It was a much more urban environment, had a lot more mixing of religions. It was very cosmopolitan. Uh, they really weren't keen on having Almoravid-style rule. But things were tough. I mean, you didn't want Alfonso's men coming in and raping everybody and killing everybody. So what are you going to do? Uh, not much choice. You're going to have to call on the Almoravid king, who is Yusuf ibn Tashfin, for help. We talked about ibn Tashfin um, this great warrior in that episode. Well, the other Muslim princes are not too keen on this idea. I mean, they know the Almoravids are not just going to come in here and fight for us. We know what happens when you bring in outsiders to fight for you. Uh, they take over. And they're going to impose their kind of rule. 
they, they've heard what it's like in Morocco. They're very strict. I mean, it's not fun like it was, okay? So they all met in Cordoba to hash out the options. And it was actually the chief Qadi of Cordoba convinced them that, hey, better the Berbers than Alfonso. So Al-Mutamid sends a message to Yusuf ibn Tashfin asking for help. Now, of course, if you're going to appeal to this guy to come help you, uh, you're going to have to make this a religious appeal. And so he, what he does is he takes what had long been a political battle and he's going to make it a religious duty. And that's going to get the attention of I mean, this guy who is a very devout uh, religious warrior. I mean, that's how he's taken over Morocco is based on this. But once you do that, it's going to change the nature of the conflict on the Muslim side. We've seen how it's changed on the Christian side. I mean, it's become a very uncompromising religious war. Well, it's going to kind of change that way uh, once we bring in the um, the Berbers. So Al-Mu'tamid appeals to Ibn Tashfin's belief that he was the designated emir of God. Al-Mu'tamid affirmed that God indeed appointed Ibn Tashfin as the defender of all Muslims, and therefore it was his duty to wage jihad in Al-Andalus. Well, you can see what's happening here. I mean, you're basically going to give him the kingdom. I mean, you're Say, hey, you, you, you're the boss, right? God appointed you as, as the boss, okay? So you're letting him in, um, and you're also saying, hey, this is, a, this is a jihad. This is a holy war. Well, Yusuf puts together an army from all over North Africa, and they land in Spain. And again, they're like the people coming from France who are outsiders who think they're going to this religious battleground to fight the enemies of God. Well, these, these are people coming from the deserts of North Africa, going to you know a continent they've never been to, thinking they're going to fight these idolaters. And they do. They meet Alfonso's forces in battle, and they defeat his army, they wound Alfonso and come very close to killing him. Well, Al-Andalus was rich beyond anything the Berbers had encountered. Remember, Cordoba was the largest city in Europe. It's extremely rich. Um, but Ibn Tashfin, he rejected any spoils of the battle. He said, quote, I came to this country not for booty. I came to wage jihad against the infidels and to gain the rewards promised to those who fight in the name of God, end quote. Now, it sounds so much like what the people on the other side are saying. So, I mean, it makes you wonder. They're um, probably all going to get before God, and at least somebody's going to be wrong. But anyway, uh, that's the way he was. He was not interested in the money. But many of his subordinates were not so immune. They would settle there, and even though the king returned to Morocco... Uh, the Berbers would stay. And, of course, they are going to rule this area. Well, El Moravid rule in Spain would be very different than the kind of accommodations the previous dynasties had reached. Muslim Spain had been the exemplar of religious tolerance and coexistence, as we have discussed, on both sides. 
But things had changed drastically on the Christian side, as we've seen, and they are going to change on the Muslim side. And in some ways, it's this action-reaction kind of thing going back and forth. You know, who started it? The other side always started it. Okay, well, the Almoravids were distinguished by their strict application of their version of Maliki law. And a key part of this law was imposing only the taxes specified in Islamic law. And in fact, no no illegal taxes was one of the mantras under which the Almoravids drummed up support in their conquest of Morocco. Now, I mean, that, that sounds like a political slogan from today, right? No illegal taxes. Aha. Well, that's not as easy as it seems, because just like most states, uh, Al-Andalus uh, had developed all these complicated rules of duties and tariffs and taxes, which reflected the very complex, integrated political and economic situation. Well, that's going to change. Now, of course, just because we say no illegal taxes doesn't mean, you know, everybody's tax rate suddenly goes down. You still have to raise the same amount of money. But now you can only do it from these taxes which are specified in the Quran, or which they see as specified in the Quran. Um or referenced in the Quran. So those ones are going to go way up. So by doing this, they had to enforce the jizya, the famous poll tax on the non-Muslims. Now, we've discussed this many times over many episodes. You know, when the jizya was first implemented in the first Muslim community, it was, you know, it's close to a fair deal as I think you, you could make. It was meant to balance off that the Christians and the Muslims had different responsibilities in the state, and this thing was meant to be, I mean, just as fair as you could be. Um, nowadays, it has become a very notorious uh, thing associated with ISIS and Boko Haram and so forth. Well, in any case, when you impose this in Spain, which is this religious battleground, it's going to look like discrimination. You're putting a tax on the Christians and Jews. Well, that is going to make, again, for bad publicity for people like Alfonso who are trying to recruit support. Look at what they're doing over there. Okay, so it's going to be much tougher. And that means life for Christians is going to be much tougher in the uh, Muslim-controlled areas of Spain than what it had been. Now, of course, with wars going on, I mean, we know what happens in that case. And so, um, for one reason, the Berbers from North Africa hadn't really encountered other religions before. And so they're, they're looking at them as, as outsiders. For Jews, it's going to get even more tough. Now, Jews, as we noticed, had long been established as the bankers and merchants throughout Al-Andalus, as they had been in much of the Muslim world and in Christian Europe as, as well. In fact, they were some of the richest communities in Al-Andalus, and they, they thrived there. But when the Almoravids looked at their wealth, they reckoned that this could only have been accumulated by unjust means. And, I mean, this story has been repeated countless times throughout history and I mean the same way in Christian Europe as well. Um, they look at Jews as bankers, 
They notice they're charging interest. They're making money. Oh, you must be cheating our people. And as a side issue, the whole issue of charging interest in Islam is a very controversial one, even today. Uh, the whole idea of Islamic banking is very complicated to sidestep this issue of interest. Uh, but it had been going on in El Andalus under other names for centuries. But when the Almoravids show up, okay, they see rich communities of Jewish bankers. Uh, to them, charging interest and loans is illegal to begin with. It's against the law, and you're also taking advantage of our people and so forth. And so, I mean, they're just going to look and say, hey, you're guilty, so we're taking your money away. Well, the same thing happens and worse throughout Europe, but it's going to be bad. So now, of course, needless to say, life for Muslims under Christian rule is getting much, much worse uh, also. So as we see so often, what we have is the battle lines are drawn, things are getting more homogenous and more polarized on both sides. And this happens in any conflict, right? The middle ground drops out and people become radicalized, and that, that's what's happening here. Well, the good news is that the El Moravid rule would only last a century, but the bad news is they would be replaced by the next Berber dynasty, the El Moahids, who had based their legitimacy on being even stricter than the El Moravids had been, and so that's just going to crank things up even more. Now, this, of course, is a bit of a generalization because although the Almohad sultans were very strict in their application of Islamic law, uh, and their uh, rule was that law had to be based solely on the Quran, which, I mean, if you know the Quran, and sure, you know, many of the listeners know it well, there aren't a whole lot of laws in there, so it requires a lot of interpretation, and it means a lot of the interpretations that previous people have made are not going to sound right. But at the same time, the Al-Muahids were also great sponsors of scholarship. Uh, the famous rationalist philosopher Ibn Rushdi, who we've talked about at length many times here, he worked for them as well. So, I mean, they're not, you know, they're, they're not fundamentalist radicals. They're not what we see today in ISIS or something. But, uh, you know, they're much more strict on their application of Islamic law. In any case, though, the al Muahids they brought uh, new intensity to the struggle. And in the 13th century, they turned back a wave of Christian expansion, particularly in what is today Portugal. Uh, the Caliph Yaqub al-Mansur defeated a large Christian army at Alarcos, and that set the Christians back for years. Uh, the name Al-Mansur means the victorious. And for the next few generations, the Al-Muahid Caliphs would all take names that were some variation of this, this title of victorious, you know, the victor and so forth. Uh, and so that just shows you the spirit they had. Hey, we're winning. We're winning this thing. We're turning this battle around. Well, that, the Battle of Alarcos would be celebrated for centuries, and particularly after things would start to go bad. But it would not be the Christian forces in Spain that would lead to the downfall of the El Muahids. It was rebellion back home. El Mansur's successor, Al Nasser, which is another name meaning victory, 
Uh, he was forced to return to Africa to fight a rebellion of the Hafsids in what is now Tunisia. Um, and they, they lose. Um, ironically, Al-Mansur's success against the Christians, which basically knocked them out of the picture for a while, made him feel safe to do this. Uh, and so it, it wasn't a false sense of security, but it was a temporary sense of security. So, um, you know, if you, you play a game like Risk or something, some war game, and you move all your troops to one side, uh, well, that leaves you vulnerable on the other side. And this is going to lead to the collapse of the al Uh And in fact, uh, the Hafsid dynasty would last longer than they did. The point here, though, is not trying to remember all these different kingdoms and dynasties which rise and fall, but you can see how things are splintering internally and how crises back in Africa is basically uh, weakening Muslim Spain and leading to the eventual fall of Muslim Spain. Anyway, the story persists about the splintering and, you know, it just continues on and it's one that we're very familiar with. Uh, however, on the other side, there's splintering going on there as well. King John of England, he had a long-running dispute with Pope Innocent III, of course, always jokes about Pope Innocent, uh, but anyway, and this was about control of the Church of England. Now, traditionally, the kings had always exercised control of the Church of England, but Innocent was one of those ambitious popes who was trying to consolidate his authority, and again, he ruled that the church, all of the church was under his control, whether it was in England or not. That meant he got the tithes, he appointed the bishops, and so forth. Well, King John, who is, he may well be the most negatively viewed king in English history. Uh, he is probably best known for being the one against whom the barons revolted and forced the Magna Carta on, which is said to be the first constitution, the beginning of English democracy. You know, that's a bad thing as a king to be known for that. Uh, he's also the villain, by the way, in the Robin Hood stories. It's often called Prince John. Well, this is him. He's the one who usurps power while his brother Richard is fighting on a crusade. Uh, that's him. And Shakespeare writes a really negative play about him as well. Uh, so he was losing power left and right anyway, and so he wouldn't let the Pope get away with that. And so he tries to seize control of the church. Well, the Pope excommunicates John, which is just one of his many defeats, um, and so that puts him on the outs with the Pope. Well, you know, Pope Innocent launched crusades not only in Spain and Palestine and against heretics in France, uh, and he also launched the notorious Fourth Crusade, which sacked Constantinople, um, which was part of his attempt to gain control of the Eastern Orthodox Church, it seems like he was preparing to invade England and get rid of John as well. Well, anyway, the story goes that King John was quite desperate and looking for allies. So he sent envoys to Al-Nasr in Spain to try to ally with him. And it's said in the Chronicles of the Time that he even offered to convert to Islam in order to get an alliance. Now, even if that part of the story is true, which I kind of doubt, I mean, what's this guy going to do, return back to England and, and say we're now Muslim? I mean, it 
don't think that would work. Um, even if that's true, I mean, I think it would have just been a sham uh, promise. But the key thing is um, he was willing to do whatever it took to get an alliance. Doesn't matter, though. Al Nasser, who, of course, was an al-Mawahid, who was very devout, he was so disgusted by this, this unfaithful Christian who was willing to give up his religion just for an alliance that he uh, rejected the, the offer outright. Now, again, we don't know how true this story is, because remember, John is this guy that just about everybody in the world hates, and so he's, I mean, he, he's accused of almost every bad thing that happens in England, and so a story where he offers to convert to Islam would just fit very well with that pattern. But the military alliance, though, that, that may well have been discussed. So anyway, the point here is not whether this scandalous story is true or not but it's what it reflects about the times. A few centuries earlier, Christian and Muslim princes were allying all over the place, and it was just politics. I mean, it was absolutely nothing uh, for a Muslim prince to ally with a Christian against another Muslim or against another Christian and switch back and forth, and it was just a thing. It was just politics. I mean, they were just the guy next door, and the question was, was he a good fighter? Was he loyal? Was he a good ally? And that was it. By the time we hit the 1200s, the religious wars are in full swing. Now, sure, Muslims are still fighting each other, and we know Christians are still fighting each other big time. But we've hit the point uh, where these alliances, even if they're going to be cross-religion alliances, I mean, it makes you an infidel. Uh, and it's so, so disgusting that even the other side sees you as an infidel. And now we have a pope with international power who's launching wars literally in all directions. North, southwest, east, southeast, all over the place. Um, northwest, into the Baltics, all over the place. Okay, And um, we have Muslim rulers coming from Africa to fight into this. Okay, so things have really changed, and this is going to uh, leave the impression of this religious conflict, which will, will linger on for a really long time. Well, by the time the Almohad caliphs can turn their attentions back to Iberia, things are in bad shape, and they're really heading towards the ultimate defeat. Um, but before the Muslims in Spain go down, uh, there's going to be a brief period of flourishing. And that will be our subject for next week. We're going to talk about the final Muslim dynasty in Spain, the Emirate of Granada, which, although it was a foothold and would eventually fall, leads to a minor golden age, maybe a silver age. And we hope to see you then, that you'll join us for that show as well. Again, thank you very much for all your kindness. Uh, we appreciate it for your kind attention, and we look forward to seeing you then. Shukran Jazeelan wa ma salama.